0: morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. Real privilege to be with you here this morning, and I bring uh, greetings in the Lord Jesus from the other end of Lakeshore Drive, down in Hyde Park, uh, where my wife and I are members and serving at Holy Trinity Church. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here with you. Uh, I know Johan uh, from back in the day, and a few other folks uh, that are coming out of the woodwork, um, but it's a real joy to be with you this morning. Let's let's turn to God's word. Uh, as you heard read, we will be in 1 Kings 18. Uh, and good for you, a long passage does not mean a long sermon. Ishmael and Queequeg had just signed papers committing to sail as whalers on the Pequod. And they were stopped by a man on the street who was dressed shabbily. He had a faded jacket and patched trousers. And this man began questioning them. What is it that you know about the captain under whom you will sail? Have you heard the stories about him? At one point, he even asked, did your contracts mention anything about your souls? Well, Ishmael is a little bit unnerved, but remains skeptical of this guy, just kind of a crazy guy on the street. But before he departs, he turns and he asks the man, what is your name? Elijah was this man's one-word response. Ishmael is now even more shaken by what these warnings might mean from this shabbily-dressed man on the street, but he dismisses him. He ignores the warning of this man, Elijah. Elijah. Well, in the coming weeks, we will be considering Elijah, but not from Moby Dick, but Elijah from the Bible, the prophet, whose story is recorded in the historical narratives of First and Second Kings. He's a prophet that served in some of the darkest days of Israel's history. First and second kings actually record the story of the deterioration and destruction of the nation of Israel. They had reached a high point under David's son, King Solomon, and from there they had a hard fall. Ten tribes, the the, the nation divides after Solomon's death, ten tribes go north and they kind of begin their own kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. They set up their own worship facilities and a temple. They're worshiping now golden calves like they did at the Exodus, and they get their own kings. And these kings go from bad to worse. Until finally, in 1 Kings 16, right at the very end, we are introduced to a king named Ahab. And it's in response to this king that God sends his prophet, Elijah. This is the setting into which Elijah brings God's word. In a time when leaders are walking away from God and the people are following In these troubled times, the word of the Lord calls his people to stay true, and that's kind of the banner under which our next four weeks will proceed, staying true in troubled times. What about us? What about you, me? Will we heed the warning of Elijah, or will we dismiss him as Ishmael did? Today, we begin in 1 Kings 18. And in the passage, we are warned about pledging ourselves to anyone or anything other than the Lord. In this passage, God is active in turning his people back to him. Because he alone is Lord. Say it again. Only he deserves our allegiance and our lives. And so, as simply as I can... The passage breaks down like this. There is only one whom we should fear, and there is only one whom we should follow. The whole passage breaks down, actually, really in two clean sections. The first, there's a conversation between men that will drive us to the question of whom will you fear? The second confrontation, then, is a contest between prophets that says, whom will you follow? Let's begin with verses 1 through 19, where Elijah confronts King Ahab and we are asked, whom will you fear? The first two verses of chapter 18 give us the setting. They introduce some of the characters and orient us to the story. We find ourselves deep into a drought, and the capital city, Samaria, is feeling the pain. So King Ahab and his right-hand man are out looking for food for the animals. Uh, this drought was not one of natural causes. Actually, Elijah announced it at his first day at work as a prophet. Look back at 17.1. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah's introduction is very brief and highlights his opposition to Ahab and God's judgment on him. go back just a few more verses, you can see why it is that God sent Elijah against him. 1630, uh, Ahab is introduced as having done more evil than all the kings before him. And that's saying something if you know about the kings that come before him. Part of it is included here that he married a foreign princess who was really zealous for her own gods who make a cameo in this chapter, Baal and Asherah. Verse 33 then gives us the most damning summary of this man. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. This is not how you want to be remembered. Ahab provoked God. And what would God do? Does God have anything to say? In the face of such provocation, yes, and he speaks through his man, Elijah. By chapter 18 now, we are three years into this drought, no rain, no dew, and Ahab has not yet repented. They're out looking for food, the capital city of Samaria is struggling, Ahab's under pressure to fix it. But instead of repenting and turning to God, takes his right-hand man to find this relief human strength, but there is no human key for divine handcuffs. It's on this search that Obadiah and Elijah meet. Now, for reasons we're going to see, Obadiah is probably the greatest character in the Bible that most of us have never heard of. We'll come back to him in a minute. But he's standing in Elijah's shadow, even though he casts a pretty big shadow himself. Elijah was a wanted man. Since the drought, King Ahab had launched this international search party for the elusive prophet who had troubled his nation. Obadiah makes it clear that to falsely report his location would bring about death. But Elijah assures Obadiah, don't worry, he will see me today. And when they do, the meeting is less than cordial. Maybe you heard it the way Ahab addresses Elijah in verse 17. He says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? But Elijah will have none of it. He immediately dismisses it as nonsense and turns the accusation back on the king himself and says, no, 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 no. You are the one who's troubled Israel. You have left God and his word. He is the source of the drought. It's his faithfulness. He's abandoned God's command. But isn't it interesting to see actually what troubles a nation in God's eyes? You see, by many accounts, Ahab was a pretty successful king. Aside from these three years of drought, his reign, like his dad's, was relatively prosperous. Uh, They had their building projects. They had military successes and their foreign policy was good as they were able to negotiate a peace not only with the southern kingdom but with the neighboring kingdom, Sidon. By many measures, Ahab was successful. But while these are important for governing bodies, they are not how God determines the vitality or health of a people. He measures it by their fidelity. And by not fearing the Lord, Ahab was the one who had brought trouble. He was not faithful. So we may ask them, what is it that faithfulness might look like in a troubled time? Enter Obadiah. Obadiah has quickly become one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and he only appears in these 16 verses. I don't think it's the same Obadiah that's the minor prophet later. Only here. But in these 16 verses, you learn two things about Obadiah, and the author takes the trouble to remind you of them twice. Maybe you heard it. First, Obadiah is mentioned as fearing the Lord, or fearing him greatly. Second, at the risk of his own life, he saved a 100 prophets from Jezebel's execution squad, that is, the queen. And that's all we know about him. We don't know his parents' names. We don't know where he's from. We don't know his education, his salary. We don't know how long he lived or where he was buried. Nothing. Sixteen verses, in and out. I wonder if that's because actually nothing else matters as much about this man. He feared the Lord more than his king. He feared the Lord more than death. And he feared the Lord and saved a hundred prophets. These two emphasized uh, characteristics of Obadiah are intimately related. And they offer us a pattern to follow. I think Obadiah actually is a wonderful encouragement and a challenge for Christians today. He's an encouragement because here's a man that went to work under the most evil of kings every day, but oriented his life to the Lord. Not only was he able to work there, he was able to be promoted to where he had face time with the king. He was one-on-one on this mission with King Ahab. Does that encourage you if you're working in a workplace that is hostile to the gospel? But it's also a challenge because he was unwilling to participate in the evil schemes of this very same king. He actively subverted The plans of his boss that would harm God's people and offend God. This, I think, really leads us to the weight of the application. Namely, that those who fear the Lord are willing to risk themselves for him. And for his people, for those serving him. And... This is one of those passages that impales the preacher before it ever reaches the pew. Most of us, me, are nowhere near this. Not even close. We may hate giving up a Saturday morning for a church-related function or a weeknight. We bristle at the idea of more austere living or a less expensive house that might free up a cash flow to further support gospel work or relief. If I, if we can barely risk our luxuries, how would we risk our lives? How are we going to risk our lives if we can't risk our luxuries? This is what Obadiah models for us. This is faithfulness. This is staying true in troubled times. Imagine if you and I served God in such a way. Will we leave a legacy like Obadiah did? If only two things in your life you could be remembered for, would you have two that would stick to a page like Obadiah's? Fearing the Lord greatly and saving a hundred prophets at the risk of your life. I don't know what that is for you. You may be able to do it in the job where you work right now. Maybe he's calling you to something else. I don't know. But the point is what will you risk? And, And never forget that that question is directly related to who do you fear? You will only risk yourself for the Lord if you actually fear him. Whom do you fear? Well, this first confrontation closes by setting the stage for the next one. Elijah tells Ahab to bring 850 prophets that are on the government payroll under his wife Jezebel. Come meet him at Mount Carmel. And so this conversation between men in verses 1 through 19 now shifts to a contest between prophets. And if the question that comes out of the first confrontation is, whom do you fear? In the second confrontation, the question becomes, who will you follow? Look at verses 20 through 40. Elijah's concern for the people is evident from the start. All the king, or the king and all the prophets are assembled, but Elijah looks right past them. Look at verse 21. They're all gathered. In verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. This is who Elijah actually wants to deal with. And he confronts their indecision. This is his diagnostic question for the spiritual state of the people of Israel. He looks at them and he says, how long will you go on wavering between two opinions? They are not the, they're not wholly following the Lord. They're only paying lip service. They use Yahweh and Baal like two crutches to prop up their religious syncretism. In other words, they're keeping their religious options open. They follow one set of moral or religious obligations when it suits them, and then may jettison those same convictions later for ones that are more convenient for the moment. Sometimes Yahweh sometimes bail, whoever will approve of what it is they want to do. And this is a dangerous thing. It's dangerous for them, it's dangerous for us, because what it is, when you're in this position, when I'm in this position, what we do is we begin to justify our actions by appealing to a religious set system, religious, cultural, moral system of some sort. And we say, well, this says it's okay. Okay. So I guess I'm all right. But then even if that contradicts another one that we say we hold, what do we do? We live in this tension. But we don't want to lose one or the other because we relish the superiority, the ability to be the one making that decision. We don't want to have any claim put on what we can say, think, feel, or do. And we think we might exonerate ourselves by appealing to this religious system. But what are we doing? What we're really doing is just cherry-picking our religious commitments. We're setting ourselves up as the real religious authority. And this happens happens in church sometimes. We prioritize or emphasize or really only highlight one element of the Scripture to the neglect of others. Think of... um, Think of the person who is rightly and admirably concerned for the marginalized and or the poor. They trumpet the Bible's teaching about the Good Samaritan and loving your neighbor. Rightly so. Amen. The Bible is their authority behind their work. But when the Bible has something to say about money, or your commitments to a local congregation, or sexual morality, all of a sudden the Bible is dismissed in favor of contemporary sociology. And whatever the culture is approving, or what they want to do, now becomes the new set of beliefs. So which is it? That's what Elijah asks. Are God and his word your authority or not? Don't play pious by appealing to the Bible as an authority only when it supports your agenda and not when it contradicts you. Elijah confronts us with the rhetorical question and the force of which is to tell us to quit hedging our religious bets. Commit. It's striking. The people's answer. Maybe you heard it. The end of verse 21. The people did not answer him a word the author may as well have just said, guilty as charged. Their silence, like our own, confirms the diagnosis. So, to address their spiritual anemia, Elijah proposes this great contest. He says, let's see which God actually is worthy to be followed. We're going to get you off the ledge. You're going to pick one or the other. If God is the real God, follow him. If If Baal is, then fine, follow him. So, Each prophetic order gets an altar and a bull. They're going to pray, and whichever God responds with fire is the real God. And so 25 through 40 actually become one of the most memorable scenes in the whole Bible. Elijah is even willing, a very courteous man, to allow the prophets of Baal to go first. But their prayers fail spectacularly. But not for lack of effort. They pray from morning until afternoon. They walk around the altar shouting to Baal. They even offer him their own blood. No one can say they didn't try. But look at the assessment in verse 26. There was no voice. No one answered. After even more vigorous attempts and some provocation by Elijah, again in verse 29, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid Tension. Well, in one sense, we can applaud on, a, on kind of a surface level, we can applaud this commitment of these prophets to religion. Right? We find that admirable in some folks, even if we disagree with them. But on the other hand, it's really foolish to give yourself that to something that's fake. Now, uh, this will date me a little bit. If, tell me if you would applaud such a person. Somebody who earnestly defends the claim that the reason your TV or computer or phone doesn't work is because of furry little creatures called gremlins. Well, what do you think about that guy? Are you going to earnestly applaud his really creative thinking and his earnest commitment to such A proposition? I hope not. I hope we would take steps to get that person appropriate care. (laughs) They need to come back to reality. So, and I love this about Elijah, in the vein of wanting to expose the foolishness of following this illusory bail, Elijah actually does not sympathize with them. He does not applaud them. Instead, he mocks the supposed God of their prayers. In comments that are just dripping with sarcasm, he suggests that maybe their God is sleeping, or I think hilariously had to go to the bathroom and cannot hear their prayers. So they call louder. No response. Silence. Because there is no Baal that can answer. Now, at this point... Elijah has a lot in common with famous atheists today or of the past, Hawking, Nietzsche, Mark, Marx. They all mock the idea of worshiping an imaginary God. And so if you're here today exploring, considering the claims of Christianity, I think it's important for you to know that Christianity does not promote faith or worship merely for the sake of faith and worship. They're not just trying to get you in a seat on a Sunday morning. It only puts forward the ideas of the gospel because they correspond with reality. The Bible has no time for made-up belief systems. Elijah is the primary example. False gods are mocked. And the people are commanded to follow the only God who is alive and awake. Elijah's message to the people is, let sleeping gods lie. The reality and responsiveness of Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, is obvious when Elijah's turn comes up. He even ups the ante a little bit by first covering his sacrifice to be burned with fire, covering it with gallons of water. Then... In contrast to the hours of prayer by the prophets of Baal, Elijah offers a simple two-sentence prayer. Fire falls, consumes the altar and the water, and when the people see it, they see their folly, and they confess that the Lord is God. And this, this right here is the point of the whole contest. Remember, at the very beginning, we said that he is addressing the people He's not merely trying to win an argument, although he did. His goal is to turn the people back to God. And this is really clear from his prayer in verse 37. Did you hear it? Elijah prays, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. The contest was designed to confront their indecision and turn them back to the true God. And they now see that the God of Israel is the only God. He alone is to be feared and followed. The consequences of not following him are dire. The prophets who deceived and harmed the people of God are summarily taken away, arrested, and executed under God's judgment. But you should know that this is then not the only time that God has done the miraculous to turn his people back to him. Myriad examples could be produced. We'll touch on one. 850 years later, the apostle Peter Is preaching to God's people who are similarly in a state of religious confusion. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they are ascribing the work of God's Holy Spirit to too much wine. And, just weeks prior, had actually condemned God's promised Messiah to death. Now, Peter proclaims that God raised this Jesus... The same Jesus that they crucified. He raised him from the dead. And he is now the exalted ruler who alone is worthy of being feared and followed. This is the supernatural demonstration of God's uniqueness that commands allegiance par excellence. And so Peter counsels his hearers in light of the bodily resurrection of Jesus that like the people on Elijah's day, they ought to repent. They ought to turn to God. So this morning, we stand with the thousands in the city, the millions around the world and across the centuries before the resurrected Jesus And we're asked the question, whom will you fear? Who will you follow? The gospel is not a fairy tale. Christians don't believe just made-up stories for the sake of having a story. Jesus' historical, bodily death and resurrection uniquely demonstrate that he is God's son and that he alone is worthy of our allegiance. Will you turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins and save yourself from a crooked generation? From a troubled time? The stakes are as high as they can be. While the false prophets were executed for their treachery, our judgment will be far worse without forgiveness offered by Jesus Christ. But God, through the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, is calling us back to God. Would you turn to Jesus and follow him from whatever else you have been splitting your opinions between? His uniqueness commands allegiance. Well, first Kings eighteen closes with Ahab's response to this magnificent contest. As God promised at the very beginning of the chapter, he is bringing rain to end the drought. But he will only do it now that he's proven that it's actually not Baal who is sending the rain. Baal has been exposed as a fraud. So if rain comes, it will only be at the word of the Lord. There's no confusion. So God has demonstrated his reality in this chapter, not only in falling fire, but in falling rain. Ahab enjoys a meal at the top of the mountain. Apparently he had a good view. Returns home as the rain begins. But he returns home, no longer angrily searching for Elijah, but actually with Elijah running alongside and accompanying his chariot. I don't think this was a race between Ahab's chariot and Elijah. They're actually running together. Elijah is leading the way for the king, God's word before the king. This most evil of kings who was looking for him and called him the troubler at the beginning is now at peace with this prophet. Ahab was confronted for his sin. He was confronted with the reality of the Lord and fire and rain. And instead of actually hating or dismissing this prophet for delivering the word of the Lord, He now welcomes him, at least for the moment. If God's word has confronted you this morning, how will you respond? The scripture is clear. There's only one whom we ought to fear and follow. And it is the risen Lord Jesus who sits at God's right hand. And he calls you to himself. So whom will you fear? And whom will you follow? Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we bow our knee before you. As the only living and true God. the God who sent his son to pay for sin. Who rose again and lives now evermore. And who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Pray that your word would be effective in our hearts, ears would be unstopped, and lives would be changed for our good and your glory. It's in the name of your Son, the risen Jesus, we pray. Amen.